0: Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Rex Black, president of RBCS, a worldwide testing and quality assurance firm serving clients ranging from small startups to Fortune 20 global enterprises. Since 1994, RBCS has delivered insight and confidence to hundreds of clients around the world. We have a team of international consultants that deliver customized training, consulting, and expert services for companies that are looking to improve their test and quality assurance practices. I'm the author of over a dozen books on software testing as well as being the past president of the ISTQB. Attendance at today's webinar earns PMI PDUs. Thank you very much, Vicki Sasser, for reviewing the material for PDU status and for making valuable suggestions. Attendees will receive an email telling them how to claim PDUs, including the PDU code. PDUs are available for live webinar attendance only. If you have any questions during the course of the webinar, submit them at any time. Um, please note that they are answered only at the end. Hope you enjoy this free webinar from RBCS. We do these free webinars as a service to the software community because at RBCS, we're not just for profit company. We've been doing them for eight plus years now. This is uh, entering our 2018 season. If you enjoy our free webinars and feel that they demonstrate solid insights into the kinds of testing challenges you face, please make RBCS your preferred software testing vendor for any and all expert services, consulting or training. We are happy to provide a quote for any help you might need. Contact us at info at rbcs-us.com. So fallacies of risk-based testing, Um, how even smart people make mistakes when they try to apply a best practice like risk-based testing. Um, So you might say, you know, what is this picture and what does this have to do with risk-based testing? Well, this picture is the uh, Deepwater Horizon, uh, which you may remember from a few years ago, which, uh, Caught fire and um, um, burned for quite some time, and created a, quite an ecological disaster as well as killing and injuring quite a few people on the uh, on the rig. Uh, it was a very good movie, I thought, made about it uh, not too long ago. Good, good in the sense of how you, it's as good as as well as you could describe a complex, technical and engineering failure in in a short-ish period without getting too pedantic and also keeping it interesting from a people point of view. Um but in case you missed that movie or you forgot about what went on with that, uh one of the major contributors to the Deepwater Horizon uh disaster was the failure to properly mitigate risk through testing, specifically a blowout risk. Um and that was what ended up happening. So um you know, it's, it is uh, it is possible in many different kinds of engineering to uh, make mistakes when you're when you're thinking about testing that don't result in adequate risk mitigation. And while the mistakes that you might make may not result in an oil rig blowing up and a bunch of people getting killed, it certainly uh, um, you know can can do some damage. So, quote from Mark Twain here: "It ain't what you know, what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure uh, that just ain't so." In other words, fallacies, things that you believe that are not actually true. And there are all sorts of fallacies about software testing, and uh, there's a number of them that have to do with risk-based testing. So I want to make you aware of of eight of them here today in the next uh, 40 minutes or so. And uh, this will help you avoid some of this uh, fallacious thinking that that really abounds about risk-based testing so that you get the full benefit. Of risk-based testing from both a, a effectiveness and efficiency uh, perspective. So the inspiration for this webinar, like, why did you why did you come up with this idea for a webinar? Somebody said to me, um, I was talking about risk-based testing and how it's a best practice and you really should do it. And they said, Well, you know, risk-based testing it just means you don't test everything. Uh, to which I responded, uh, yeah, that's true of just about every kind of testing. In fact, it's true, not just about every kind of testing, it's true of every kind of testing. Um, now, we could get into sort of a an um, uh, extended discussion about whether the number of tests for a realistic size system is infinite or just very, very large, um, it it turns out that it really doesn't matter because the number of tests is so large as uh, to be practically infinite. So I did some calculations on this once based on something I, I heard from the uh, people who wrote the Solaris operating system. And they said that there were more internal states in the Solaris operating system than there were atoms in the universe. So I did some calculations on that. And basically, even if you automated Um, all of the tests and could run each test very, very quickly, it would take you more than your own lifetime, well more than your own lifetime to just visit every state. Um, And that's just state coverage. It's not even thinking about what about all the transitions between the states. And of course, an operating system is more than just a state transition diagram. It has all sorts of other behaviors associated with it. So you sort of get the, the gist. You are facing a practically infinite number of tests and you are gonna select a very, very uh, small finite subset uh, from that set that you're gonna do that. that. Now the question is, how are you gonna do that? Are you are just gonna take a random walk in the big cloud of infinite tests that you could run. And then when somebody finally says you're out of time, you go, well, bummer, but there's all these other tests I could run. But that's always what you're gonna say, regardless of how long you spend wandering around in the infinite cloud. So. Um, you need to have some sort of way of selecting that subset. And risk-based testing is about using an understanding of what could go wrong, how likely those things are to go wrong, and if they were to go wrong, how bad it would be. In other words, the likelihood and the impact. Um, And using that to select a set of tests such that the remaining risk at the end of this whole adventure of testing that you're going to perform is as low as it can possibly be, given the amount of effort that you were able to expend. Excuse me. Um, Now, related to this idea that risk-based testing is just some form of of corner cutting or or short cutting, um, there are other people out there who will say, well, Risk-based testing doesn't cover all the requirements. Now, this is uh, this is unfortunate, but it, it has roots in a uh, some some amount of reality in that there are some people out there that talk about something that they call risk-based testing, which is actually not really risk-based testing, uh, in my opinion. It's um, something that I'll get to later that um, is is more just reacting to things. And, and again, I'll explain that a little further. But in, in, this, in this particular approach, it is indeed true that some requirements might end up not getting tested. Um, now, when I say requirements here, I mean, the, you know, things like business requirements in a traditional life cycle or user stories and um, acceptance criteria in a uh, agile type of life cycle. Now, properly done, risk-based testing will indeed cover Uh, not only all the risks, but all of the requirements, at least the important risks, the ones that are worth covering. Um, And the way that you do this is that you uh, use uh, traceability or coverage analysis or whatever your test management tool refers to this as to link risks to requirements, as well as linking risks to tests and linking the requirements to tests, either directly or indirectly through the risks, so that you can actually run a report that shows, hey, yes, every single requirement has at least one test associated with it, so therefore it is, it is covered. Now, the question of, well, is that adequate coverage? Of course, that gets into issues like uh, what the appropriate depth of coverage should be based on risk, which I'll get to uh, shortly, um, and, and also just adequacy of the tests, which is something that should be addressed through, uh, through a review process where uh, testers and possibly other stakeholders are involved in reviewing um, test cases or test conditions. Now, um, if you're doing this, this is what's called a blended strategy. It's a blended testing strategy that incorporates both risk-based testing and requirements-based testing. Now, this brings us to the, uh, the it's all about technical risk fallacy. In other words, um, what we're gonna do is just basically reactive testing. Now reactive testing is where there's no upfront planning, analysis, design, implementation of the test. It's just, let me see what we get and I'll start checking it out. Uh, Exploratory testing is a a form of this, um, using checklists, defect taxonomies, um, other forms of experience-based and defect-based testing. Those are all um, uh, typically part of a reactive testing strategy. Now, I have no problem with reactive testing strategies per se. I think uh, experience-based and defect-based techniques and reactive testing strategies are an important part of any sort of uh, of testing uh, uh, project, testing effort. It's just that they, by themselves, uh, are very good at finding a large number of bugs especially bugs that you might otherwise miss using other strategies and techniques but that's pretty much all they do and from a confidence building perspective from a risk mitigation perspective from a regression risk mitigation perspective especially and even from an information generation perspective they just don't do that much for you other than going look at this big pile of bugs that we found now not denigrating that. Obviously, defect detection is a major objective of testing typically, and uh, it's it's very valuable to, uh, to find defects, but we shouldn't assume that uh, that's all testing is about. Um, and so, you know, you, you want to not only say, I'm just going to run a bunch of tests that I think are really likely to find bugs based on my experience or based on this checklist or based on what a brilliant tester I am and I can get in and break anything. But you also have to think about these other objectives that need to be achieved and, uh, and also impact, not just likelihood. Finding, finding a lot of bugs um, is, is all well and good, um, but you also need to test in areas that perhaps are not very likely to have bugs, but if they did have bugs, would be really disastrous. Then we have this one, the, uh, the sort of the, the Lone Ranger approach, the, uh, this idea that um, the test team doesn't need any help from anybody else to do the quality risk analysis. Um, they're going to take requirements. They're going to take user stories and acceptance criteria. They're going to take, you know, whatever, whatever sources of information are out there about what is to be built and without working with any other project or product stakeholders any business or technical stakeholders uh, they're going to simply analyze this information and uh, come up with risks based on that analysis and then test those risks now this is really basically just applying some sort of uh, risk heuristics to your requirements so it's actually not risk-based testing; it's requirements-based testing with a with a risk awareness to it. Um, it is likely to uh, miss a lot of risks, um, and it's also likely that the uh, likelihood and or impact ratings of the uh, the risks, which are of course actually requirements, will be wrong. And the reason for this is that. My experience for the last 20 or so years working with clients, helping them get started doing risk-based testing is I find that any one stakeholder or participant in a in a team or a project will be aware of about 25% of the risks at best, uh, possibly less, um, but usually no more than that. And so that means that even, even really smart, experienced testers uh, have a lot of bra- bl- blind spots here, and you know they're 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 going to be missing 75% of the risk, just like these other really smart uh, stakeholders would. Now you might say, well, if everybody's missing the same number, well, what's the what's the point in involving a lot of people? Well, the thing is that maybe everybody may be missing the same number, but they're missing different ones because their perspectives are different. So what makes risk-based testing really powerful is that you get those business and technical stakeholders, project and product stakeholders involved in this process. And yes, everybody's got their own blind spots, but collectively, you see a pretty clear picture of what the risks are and what sh- what level of, of effort should be expended to mitigate those risks and the order in which those risks should be mitigated. So uh, there are certainly... There's value in, in having a structured process for risk-based testing. There's value in templates. I've got risk-based testing process and, and templates and examples and articles and stuff out on the website. You can go out and download those for free. And those are, those are certainly valuable and, and useful to you uh, if you're starting this process. But the most important thing, um, and I've I was been saying this since well before the Agile Manifesto came along, Uh, Getting the right people together to do the quality risk analysis is more important than those processes, templates, and and resulting documents. Again, not that the processes, templates, and supporting documents don't have value, they do, but they will only have real value if you have the right set of people uh, participating in the in the quality risk analysis process. Now, Another fallacy associated with risk-based testing is this one, that, okay, well, risk-based testing will help us uh, pick the right test cases, but it doesn't really tell you anything other than that. Um, Well, no. Um, That certainly is an important benefit, um, making sure that, you know, where the risk is higher, you test more, and uh, where the risk is lower, you test less. Uh, And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But there are other important benefits that you don't want to miss out on. Um, So if you have proper traceability of your tests and your test results back to the risks that they cover, you can talk about which risks have been mitigated and which ones have not. And that's going to allow you to report your test results in a way that's going to be a lot clearer to people because remember, if we do a group process for identifying the risks, And that risks list, that risk catalog is already uh, defined in a way that people are are used to, that they they understand it because they helped create it. So you talk about which risks are mitigated and which risks are not mitigated based on your test results. You're actually talking to people about something they understand, which, you know, contrast that with people who go into test results meetings or daily standups or something like that and go, well, we had 852 test cases that we we're going to run and we run 759 of them and a hundred of them fail and the rest of them pass. And people are like, well, what does that mean? You know? So risk-based testing can help make uh, uh, your status more understandable to people, more immediate in terms of what could go wrong if we release now. Not only do you want to allocate test effort based on, uh, on level of risk, but you also want to run the tests and risk priority. So the higher the risk, the earlier you want to test, because one of the things you want to avoid with risk-based testing is this, why are we finding out about this for the for the first time right now, which is a typical reaction that people have when you find some showstopper bug two days before the end of an iteration or a release. You really want to avoid that. Risk-based testing can help you do that, um, provided that things are given to you in such an order that you can test them in risk order. But people aren't doing that, and then you can explain, look, I want to be able to give you the maximum possible warning about serious problems. But that means that not only am I going to want to test in risk order, but I need you to give me the stuff in risk order. And, of course, one of the things that, that happens, it's, it's kind of regrettable, but it does happen, is that we run out of time before we are able to get through all of our tests. Uh, now, in in a purely requirements-based approach or other other strategies for um, selecting and prioritizing your tests. This can mean that important tests end up either not getting run or the important tests end up holding up the end of the iteration or release or pushing something to a subsequent iteration, and that, of course, results in a certain amount of uh, unhappiness among testing stakeholders. But if you run your tests in such a way that the tests that remain to be run are always less important than the tests that have already been run, then you really are providing a good benefit to yourself and the team to say, well, you know, we can stop testing at any point. The most important tests will always have been run in the sense of the ones that remain to be run are less important than the ones that uh, we've already run. It's all a question of how much risk the team is willing to accept. And this gets back to the reporting your tests in terms of residual risk. When you can say, look, this is the residual risk in the sense of these are the things we haven't tested yet or these are the things that we've tested and we know there are problems with, are you comfortable going live with it like that? And now it becomes a risk-aware release decision and you're triaging your tests based on that. And again, because the risks all came out of a common collective discussion, then everybody's making an informed decision here, so that's another really important benefit. Notice that, that part of this, um, actually not just part of it, but but a lot of this that I've been talking about, uh, these these benefits um, are associated with having proper traceability between your risks and the tests that are that are covering them. So if you don't have that set up in your test management system, then that's definitely something that you you need to 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 get in there. Um. Okay. Yeah. Test design. Oops. Yeah. Test design. Um. So sometimes people will say, "Well, you know, risk-based testing is all well and good, and it establishes a level of risk, but then, you know, what is?" the higher the risk, the more I test really mean. and What what exactly is that? They sort of consider the advice to be too um, zen-like, in a sense, too abstract. Um, And it doesn't say, well, you know, here here are techniques that you should apply. Now, um, at the very least, I would say, well, this is a fallacy because properly done risk-based testing will actually give you sort of Categories or scales of an extent of testing to perform. So, the higher, the highest risk, risk items get extensive testing. Going down the, the scale from there, it's more of a broad type of test, cursory test for less risky, uh, sort of an opportunistic approach to testing for even less risky ones where you say, yeah, you know, I'll look for a way of incorporating this into testing something else. And then reporting bugs only would be where you would run any tests at all at least you wouldn't create any tests but you know if you happen to see any bugs in that particular area associated with that risk you would report them um now at that point um you know that may be enough guidance your testers may be um clever and creative enough to just say well we're going to take it from there but i've got actually on the on the website on the uh, articles page and the, and the blog page there's a uh, a uh, brief write up I don't know it's about maybe three pages long that talks about selection of test design techniques and the appropriate coverage criteria for those techniques based on uh these these uh extent of testing uh points on the scale so it is it is a fallacy as i said that that uh test design is not um informed by the risk analysis it it is if you do it properly. Now of course these are just heuristics um you know the 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 point at which this can all be turned into a completely deterministic algorithm is the point at which um human testers will be entirely replaced by machines so you know we don't want to <laughs> we don't want to urge on that day um but it does give a lot of guidance and it gives help to uh managers too because it gives them a way of sort of measuring uh are we, are we doing enough? Or are we doing too little uh, with respect to each risk? Now, um, so far, what I've been talking about, a lot of it is uh, kind of related to a certain, um, uh, I guess you could say sloppy thinking or missing, missing some pieces, if you will, of, of what proper risk-based testing is. Uh, there are also... Fallacies associated with sort of the opposite end of that spectrum, which is the the sort of going overboard, um, and that that happens, and I've seen that happen when people try to get uh, quantitative about their risk-based testing. So I do like to use likelihood and impact as the as the factors that influence or that calculate the level of risk, and that. Uh, I will typically assign numbers to those where the impact of one is the highest impact, impact of five is the lowest, and same for likelihood. So I multiply those together to get a scale from one to twenty-five for the overall level of risk. So that that may look quantitative, but those are those are actually just ordinal scales. By ordinal, I mean that they put things in an order, um, but they they aren't they don't have mathematical meaning that way. So. If I say that something has a risk priority number of 1, in other words, it has a likelihood of 1 and an impact of 1, so 1 times 1 is 1, I say something else has a risk priority number of 2, so say an impact of 2 and a likelihood of 1 or vice versa, so that's a a risk priority number of 2, what I'm saying is that that first thing is more risky than the second thing. The thing with a risk priority number of 1 is more risky than the thing with a risk priority number of 2. But I'm not saying that the thing with the risk priority number of two is half the level of risk of the one with the risk priority number of one. See, that's not the way that works Uh, because it's not actually a quantitative thing. It's not like what insurance companies do when they calculate expected payouts on insurance policies and they're able to use statistically valid pools of data to calculate that expected payout based on the likelihood of a claim and the average claim. I've seen people try to do this where they use the risk priority number and try to say, okay, well, I can, I can come up with a formula to predict the number of test cases or the number of person hours and so forth. And, uh, while those certainly could be used as heuristics or guides, especially if you're going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to assign a range there. And you try to, again, reduce this to some sort of deterministic algorithm and, um, it's just, it's not going to work. At least I have not seen it work. I'm certainly open to somebody comes along and shows me an example of here's how I did this quantitatively in my organization and it worked. I'd be happy to come in and study that. Um, I suspect that what you would find in that particular case is that uh, what was going on there is some sort of outlier or unique situation that, that made it work. Like, for example, I wouldn't be terribly surprised if IBM. Had access to enough statistical failure data for a lot of their software that they could actually do this kind of thing. Just because they they have this tremendous volumes of this kind of information, Oracle might also be able to do it. You know, other large systems and database vendors they may have enough enough such data. But most of my clients I go in and work with them, and they they really they couldn't do it. Um. So what we really want to do here is focus on, you know, thinking of this as a qualitative technique that allows us to identify test conditions. Those are basically the risk items and then assign the appropriate level of coverage and the order in which to run the test based on likelihood and impact scores, which are, you know, associated with um, some uh, objective and uniformly agreed scale. So we should be able to say, look, very high or one, impact means this, two means this, three means this. There should be well-defined criteria so that no matter who you ask in the team, if they agree about, to say, the impact scenario, they will agree on the impact rating. All right. Well, closely related to the reactive risk-based testing that I talked about before, um, is uh, this idea of documentation. We don't need no stinking documentation. We're not going to document anything. Uh, and it, again, to me, this is not, this is not proper risk-based testing. In proper risk-based testing, you would be able to say, here is my list of risk items. Here's the likelihood rating. Here's the impact rating associated with each one. You'd also be able to, to trace those down to the tests that cover them you know, ideally, this is all in some sort of test management system and, and it's captured there. It's not just an exercise that people went through and said, oh, okay, well, good. I'm glad we talked about that. And then you just go off and do it. <coughs> Excuse me. That does happen um, without a doubt, um, often in, in um, conjunction with this purely reactive approach to, um, to uh, risk based testing, but sometimes just out of just sheer uh, laziness. Um, but you know, keep in mind that if you uh, if you don't capture this information, then, then those benefits that I was talking about before of you know aligning the allocation of effort and the prioritization, um, the, the ability to drop less important tests later, the ability to report your results in terms of risk mitigated not mitigated, all those benefits pretty much go away. But the only thing that you get out of it is. Well, we have a we have a collective consensus about what's risky and how risky it is based on a conversation. But if you don't have any notes from that, you don't have any documentation whatsoever from that. Do you really have a consensus? All right. So, those are the uh, the eight uh, dangerous fallacies that I uh, wanted to review with you guys today, um, in the spirit of. Of last year, where we were uh, keeping it keeping it uh, concise and, uh, and trying to make things quicker, so that this, these sessions are a little more accessible to people, we're uh, uh, winding them up faster. So, in conclusion, here we've so said we've got eight um, eight dangerous fallacies, um, and these are specifically associated with risk-based testing. I could do a similar sort of exercise and identify fallacies for various other testing-related things, but risk-based testing, as a lot of you will know, is near and dear to my heart, so I wanted to do this one. Uh, And um, as we went along, notice that I pointed out, you know, this is the way that this fallacy negatively affects your ability to get benefits from this technique or is, you know, as illusory um, or might lead you down a wrong path. So. That's the uh, that's the point of debunking these fallacies, is to help you do risk-based testing better and to make sure that you get um, the benefits of it, as well as to make sure that other people don't miss out or, or repudiate the benefits uh, based on some of these fallacies. Because I've seen organizations that say, well, we've decided that we're not going to do risk-based testing because of X, where X was one of the eight fallacies that I just went through. It's kind of like, well and it's not actually true, and by believing that that fallacy is true, you're cutting yourself off from that benefit. So um, hopefully this, uh, this discussion here is uh, giving you some ideas on how to avoid that sorry fate. Um, there's more information, there's articles, uh, videos, etc., etc., out on the website, YouTube channel, that's all stuff that's out there for free, so feel free to go take a look at that. We'll go into the Q&A session here, and uh, as always, I will put up the uh, advertisement um, while we're in that session, which you'll notice includes my LinkedIn and YouTube and Twitter email coordinates there. Um, So please uh, go ahead and submit your questions via the uh, Q&A feature. Um, Before we get to the questions, as you're typing your questions in, uh, please remember that if you feel the insights and ideas like the ones you just heard can help you with your testing challenges, please make RBCS your preferred software testing vendor for any and all expert services, consulting, or training. We are happy to provide a quote for any such help that you might need. Uh, And our contact information there, info at rbcs-us.com. So let's see, I got a question from Alex here. Um, Alex says, how do we calculate residual risk with the risk-based testing approach? Um, So there's a detailed article that I um, co-wrote with a colleague at Sony uh, because I did some work with Sony in Japan on uh, helping them get risk-based testing up and and, uh, running in their organization. So this is something you can find out on the articles page. You go out to the articles page and do a search on risk-based testing, and it talks about reporting, um, uh, measuring residual risk um, during risk-based testing. The short answer is the sort of the executive summary of that is that, What we do is we, you have your test management system and your risks are in your test management system along with the requirements or the user stories and other test basis elements, the things that you base your tests on. And when you develop your tests, um, what you do is you capture traceability of your tests back to what they cover, which would include the risks. It may also include other things like acceptance criteria or user stories or requirements or what have you. And then when you run the test, you now have a test result associated with the risk through the test itself, right? So the test result relates back to the test that was run, and the test that was run relates back to a risk. So if all of the tests that relate back to a risk have been run and all of those tests passed, then we can say that that risk is fully mitigated, fully mitigated in the sense of it's as mitigated as it's going to get. If we've got a risk where there are tests that have been run and they pass, but there are also tests that haven't been run yet, uh, so we don't know the status, then that, test, that risk is not fully mitigated um, because there's still information left to get. If we have a risk where some of the tests associated with that risk have been run and failed, we now have a risk that's not fully mitigated and we know that there are problems with it that need to be addressed. So each risk can be classified into one of those three categories. Either it's fully mitigated, not, not fully mitigated yet, not fully mitigated, and associated with a known problem. And we can report our results in terms of which risks fall into which of those categories. So that's the, that's the, uh, the uh, executive summary there, Alex. The, the more detailed uh, uh, description of, of an example of how we did it at Sony You can find by going out, as I said, to the web page, go to the articles page and search for that article that uh, I uh, co-wrote on um, risk-based test results reporting. Uh, Let's see, got a question from Doug here. What different approach do you use for risk-based testing in an agile project compared to a waterfall project? Well, I'm I'm happy you asked that, Doug. There is, on the RBCS YouTube channel, a really detailed response to that, (laughs) a recorded webinar, uh, similar to this one, that you can go listen to. Um, So, like like with my response to Alex here, I'm going to give you the executive summary, and then if you want more information, you can go out to the YouTube channel and find that um, recorded webinar and, and give it a listen. But basically, in, in, a, in a waterfall or or other sequential life cycle model or a traditional iterative model like Rational Unified Process, also called RUP, Rapid Application Development, also called RAD, in those sort of traditional types of, of life cycles, the risk analysis happens up front during the requirements definition phase, um, which in RUP would be called Inception. And we would... Um, do that risk analysis, and that risk analysis would be, well, one hopes, relatively stable over the course of the project. Though, of course, the reality, one of the things that often causes waterfall projects and even RUP projects to break is that the scope and uh, the intended delivery of the product changes over the course of the project, and that is very disruptive to the work that was done in the the beginning of the project trying to lock down the requirements and so if that's happening that's of course going to break your, your uh, risk analysis as well. So Agile was is created in part in response to that sort of dysfunction where you know the, the traditional lifecycle models are very uh, brittle in, in, in the face of change and so at the beginning of each iteration you go through that process of selecting from the product backlog the user stories that you are you intend to create in that particular iteration, right? And you go through a, a grooming story grooming process and you go through a uh, uh, typically an estimation process, try to put story points on the stories um, so you can see, well, yes, can those actually fit into an iteration or not? Now, when you do risk-based testing in Agile, what you do is you put the quality risk analysis process right in the middle of that little sandwich that I just described. Effectively, the beginning of iteration planning, you're gonna do your story grooming, and immediately after the story grooming, when you've selected the user stories that you think you're gonna create, and gone through and you know cleaned them up a little bit, selected, I mean selected from the product backlog, you then do a quality risk analysis for those user stories, looking both at functional and non-functional areas of risk, And based on that, you come up with a a risk category or risk register, risk catalog, or something like that uh, for for the the risks associated with that particular iteration. And then you go into your estimation process, and the fact that you've done the risk analysis helps you more accurately assign story points uh, to your uh, uh, stories because you know the risks that are associated with them and you know the level of risk associated with those risks. So basically the risk analysis becomes a part of the iteration planning um, and that's how it fits in there. (coughs) Excuse me, Um, again, if you would like a more detailed uh, explanation of that, uh, feel free to pop on out to the uh, YouTube channel, you can see it down there below, the coordinates for our YouTube channel, Uh, subscribe, um, and then uh, give a listen to that recorded webinar, and it will uh, it will give you a, uh, a much more detailed explanation. I'll probably uh, rerun that recorded webinar at some point in the future because it was quite popular, um, and I think it's the, the, your question, Doug, is one that uh, uh, resonates for a lot of people. So I got a couple a uh, couple questions that came in there. That's good. Um, we'll go ahead and uh, close this session now. We'll keep it keep it done within an hour um again fitting with the uh concept of uh making these uh, more lightweight and as we go forward um now before we do um close it though I wanted to mention something about the, the webinar series this year we're kind of changing things up a little bit some of you all may have seen this on uh, on my LinkedIn and other social media we are going to do four of these sort of of uh, traditional style webinars this year um, and when I say traditional style, these, these used to be things that would run for 90 minutes, but we're going to try to keep them within, um, an hour or less. Um, uh, so we're going to do four of those, and then we're going to do, um, four of the one key idea sessions, which, um. I think uh, some of you will be familiar with from last year. We introduced that idea, the one key idea. Those are the really, really focused ones. It's like a 20-minute, very brief presentation, followed by 10 minutes of Q&A. So it's 30 minutes tops. It's focused like on a single thing. We did one on test automation ROI, for example, last time. So we're going to do four of those. And then we're also going to do four sessions of what I call two points of view at two, which is going to be where I... Pick some influential person in the software business or software testing industry and uh, somebody who'd have a somewhat different take on something, some topic that they're known for and that I have expertise in as well. And um, we're going to pick that topic and we're going to discuss it. And that's, again, going to be short, like 20 minute kind of deal. Um, and uh, then there'll be there'll be Q&A. So hopefully you'll be interested in that. We're gonna, I'm going to be announcing that session here. Uh, really soon now, probably sometime in the next week or so, with the first session, which will happen in February. That's the two points of view at two. So, we, we, you know, we try things and see how they turn out. Um, so in addition to the free webinars, um, that, um, g- which you can sign up for at our, our website, rbcs-us.com, uh, keep in mind that if you want any one of these webinars done for your company only, um, just send us an email. We're happy to give you a, a price on that. Um, Sign up for our newsletter at rbcs-us.com that will get you valuable discounts on consulting and training services and a regular newsletter uh, which includes a featured article on software testing and quality and news about what we're up to Uh, you see the twitter coordinates there facebook coordinate linkedin coordinate you can connect with me on linkedin uh, you know just to to attend these webinars you want to connect with me on linkedin that's that's cool Uh, Do remember to check your email over the next couple days. You might be the lucky winner of a free e-learning course from RBCS. You were registered simply by attending this free event. Um, You you can also uh, subscribe to our podcast on the website. You can find the RSS feed out there, so feel free to do that. Uh, Subscribe to the YouTube channel, as I said. Um, If there are people that you know that would benefit from these webinars, uh, you can point them to the YouTube channel. We've got you know, literally hundreds of recorded webinars and videos and stuff out there. Uh, so all good free resources that we offer, as I said before, as a service to the software testing community, because at RBCS, we are a not-just-for-profit company. Uh, please do remember, though, we got to keep the lights on, so contact us for a quote anytime you need consulting, expert services, or training related to software testing and quality. This concludes the webinar. Thanks for joining us today.